0: Escape from Plan A. Escape. escape, escape, from Plan A.
1: Hey everyone, it's another episode of Escape from Plan A. I'm your host today, Diana, and I'm joined by Teen. Hey. And uh, our, our special guest today is Diamond Yao, and she is one of the writers of Planning Magazine. Um, recently, she published an article called Navigating Capitalist Mandates for Happiness and Collected Fears of Shame. And, um, Tina and I both really like this article because it kind of epitomized a lot of the discussions we were having about being Asian American, grappling with, as you said, diamonds, the insidious nature of the model minority myth and how it kind of erases, well, it takes away our agency and it also erases just like, the sheer cowboyishness, right, of just like being immigrants in the first place. And I really liked your perspective on all of those things. The way that you say it is like, um, there's pride in failing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's something strong and beautiful about failing. We're not allowed to even, even feel that, you know, both like in terms of like eastern culture and their like feelings of shame as well as uh western culture this like uh, need to always be you know doing something and like living in the moment and like the fear of missing out because we need to like maximize the efficiency of which at which we experience happiness and success and stuff and like in between all that i think there's also this like Asian American like need to succeed because that is what we are here to do you know that justifies our parents sacrifices or whatever and so it's it's just a lot riding on success and the way that people always talk about uh accepting failure or like learning from failure or like you know, finally learning to succeed through failure. It's still it's still focusing on success as the goal, but there's something to be said about just just failing and being like, yeah, whatever. You know, like just just we're not allowed to just have that, and I think that makes us like miss out on a lot of stuff, and we're not even allowed to really talk about it, uh, which is why I'm really glad that Diamond mean, you talked about it, and uh, we're talking about it now.
2: Yeah, so uh, thank you so much, uh, Tina and Diana, for having me on. I'm really happy to be here, and yeah, I think um, what what I kind of wanted to do with my article is to have a more nuanced conversation surrounding failure than I think uh, we as a society have had up until now, and I wanted to just like put forward this idea that failure is not just like something that's like negative that should be avoided at all costs that we have to deny or that we can't talk about which is as I say in my article uh, is something that both eastern and western culture both do in different ways but there is elements of that in both Um, and I also wanted to kind of like talk about another aspect of failure is especially with everything that's been going on in the world right now with the pandemic, with like social unrest, to see how as a society, we have really failed like a lot of people and that we have exploited them and like really not been fair to them. And that's also a failure. And I wanted to kind of like tie everything together and see that like how or lack of good conversation around failure, it's... Not only just like bad for us as individuals, if we have something like happen in our personal life, that's like a failure, but it's also really bad on a societal level as well. So I I think that especially now, given this current circumstance in the world, it's, it's a very important topic to talk
0: about. First, and I think this is always present whenever we try to talk about something as broad as what you're talking about is what is the Asian American angle here? And I think reading your article and talking with people, I think more and more who are thinking similar thoughts, I I have to feel like to some degree, like part of it is because I think Asian Americans are particularly, particularly susceptible to not questioning, you know, sort of social norms or the sort of like reigning ideologies of the day and sort of like not questioning assumptions that I feel like at any given point, a good portion of society has already questioned these things. Like, for example, you talk a lot about the mandates of capitalism. And uh, and I gather that ties into things like um, consumer culture, careerism, things like that. And... I mean, for me, is that there's just, we don't have a tradition because we're so new. We don't have an Asian American tradition. Throw out Asian culture, right? I'm talking about our existence here. Uh, We don't have a homegrown culture of like an alternative or resistance to the sort of prevailing ideologies. And I feel like as a second generation Asian American, it makes me feel like we are particularly exposed to the downsides of sort of mainstream capitalist ideology i think that's my way into this for me is i just feel like everything that you're talking about i think a lot of people are talking about i just feel like asian americans are particularly vulnerable to it i don't know if you feel the same way but
2: yeah i i do i think i think though like this has a lot to do with uh the model minority uh myth it's it's a very insidious myth because on the surface it looks like such like a positive thing uh, but the more you look at it, the more you can realize just like how toxic and harmful it is, and uh, how it has like erased like the existence and the realities of so many asian American uh, people like if you actually look at history, uh, Asians have been present in North America for centuries. There has been an Asian presence. So um I'm Canadian and for example like it was Asian people who came to Canada to like build the transcontinental railroad in Canada um like a century ago so they've been here for like a while and they were treated completely horribly by the government like the government just uh, did not allow them to stay did not let their families like immigrate like it it's, it's it was like very abhorrent just like how they were treated also, like in a lot of a uh, civil rights movement, Asian Americans have also been really involved. It is just that in the mainstream consciousness, and the mainstream history, like these things have been so erased in favor of the model minority myth uh, that ultimately like favors like white supremacy, that I think that like in the dominant ideology or in the dominant consciousness, both for non-Asian people and for Asian people, there's like this idea of like, oh, well, Asian people usually are just pretty quiet, pretty silent, or don't really have a tradition of resistance. When in fact, there is a long tradition of resistance, but like white supremacy just keep trying to erase it for its own gains, really, because like this has been perpetuated up until the present day. So up until the present day, there's still a lot of both non-Asian people and Asian people who think like that. And I, I think this has to change.
0: Let, let me push back on that just in this regard, because it seems like there's a parallel history, I guess, in terms of having laborers come over. Was it like late 19th century? To come over as sort of like strike breakers and working on the railroad and being this hyper exploited labor class, for a lot of Asian Americans that is in our consciousness. Um, we've been taught about it in in college and in all the Asian American studies courses. It has entered the canon of like mainstream American history to a degree. I mean, it's a footnote, but it's there. And uh, I would say for myself that when I say that we don't have a tradition, I am point. I'm really thinking about. The fact that Asian-Americans as they exist now really don't, for the most, for the vast majority of people, don't have any connection to that history uh, in terms of their personal lineage. And that, I guess, is what I mean. Like, we don't have, we, we never inherited that tradition because we're not even really connected to those people for the most part. And, you know, I think we're taught to bristle at this idea, you know, because of the perpetual foreigner notion of resisting that notion. But it is true. I mean, when I was young, uh, I'm in my early 40s now. When I was young, there were probably closer to like 5 million Asian Americans. And now we're at four times that number. It's a completely different situation. That means like all of these Asians were coming after me and, uh, you know, a lot of people who are pretty recent immigrants. And that's the sort of reality of Asian Americans. We probably, I don't know the exact percentage, but I'm guessing like a a very large number of us are actually foreign born. And I think for me, when I was reading your article, you know, it really struck me that, I think you're making critiques about, um, well, let me know if you you agree with this, but I think you're making critiques really about modern sort of capitalist existence, right? It's not just uh, taking into account uh, all the horrors of history and and uh, and that, but also just sort of like what it's like to be, let's say, a middle class Asian American today. And, you know, when you brought up the model minority, I think I feel like it's always a little bit incomplete the way we talk about it, because to me, it's not just who we leave out, meaning, well, it's not all Asian Americans, for example, go to college or go to grad school and have a white collar job and all this stuff. There are other Asian Americans. And I think, yeah, I agree with that. But on the other hand, I felt like your article was talking directly to those people as well to say that there are problems with that existence itself. It's not just that it's not representative of all Asians or even most Asians, but that even for those people for whom it is representative, that there are still problems with that that are sort of left out uh, in terms of how we kind of talk and think.
2: Yeah, uh, that, that totally makes sense. And I, I think like this is kind of like uh, what I was talking about in my article is that Even like modern Asian Americans who are middle class or higher, um, and who, whose like parents or grandparents are like more recent immigrants, um, they're so detached from like this history of resistance that Asian Americans have had historically. It's so detached. They think that, well, you know, either they don't even know about it. Uh, which like it was my case for a long time. I just did not know about that history until I got much older. Or if they know about it, they're like, "Well, that's not us. Like, we're not really those people." Uh, and I think like this kind of mentality uh, it leads to like an obliviousness to like these problems within like capitalist mindset and within like model minority mindset. I think that like it's also like such a complicated issue to discuss because for a lot of recent Asian immigrants to North America being an immigrant is already like such a precarious thing like your status in North America is already so precarious and you're already like so marginalized that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to, well, use the model minority as a crutch just to be able to survive. And the thing is, I think that, like, society also has to answer to that because it is clearly a really big issue if, for some people, they are in a situation where they're just so marginalized and they feel so, like, not included in society that they have to perpetuate these harmful ideologies just in order to survive and just in order to like, be respected and be able to like, make a living and support their family. Uh, so, so, so I think that's, that's very complex.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I really like how, what you just said about how society should answer for the model minority myth. Because oftentimes when we talk about that, we just say like, oh, Asians need to answer for this. You know, like Asian Americans need to answer for how they're the model minority and they're oppressing other people or they're complicit in whiteness. And it's like, where does where do you think that comes from? You know, we didn't just step off the plane and go, oh, we're the hardworking, industrious, quiet people who never oppose authority. That was that is a survival mechanism, and I think that does not ever get the the recognition that that deserves.
0: I feel the same frustration as you, Diana, when I think about this because it is there's a circularity to it because I think a lot of it is the fact that Asian American disc- and this is my frustration. I think this is why I've always wanted to uh, do do shit like you know podcasts or whatever is because like when I listen to Asian Americans talk, like what I hear is. People talking about themselves by picking like other people that they think like sort of represent them and then critiquing them like it is a what I'm saying is it's a self-contained and somewhat circular discussion about say ripping off the model minority uh, mask and really becoming our authentic selves for a long time I've you know I saw that discussion and what it really became for the most part was a contest to see. Uh, who could get the coolest job or work in the coolest industry or have the most? The, and then that became who who has the best Instagram profile or best Facebook profile. It became uh, the same, the, the quest to resist the model minority label, uh, which I think a lot of Asian Americans learned about and then knew to avoid. Uh, I think led us down the same sort of path of trying to be the authentic individual that all Americans sort of have been suffering from to a degree. Our stuckness in that, to me, is very American. You know what I mean? So I guess what I'm saying is, like, I don't really think that Asian Americans, like, we have really, like, unique and particular problems per se. I think that we are, if anything, just more susceptible to a degree to the sort of ravages of... Uh, sort of modern neoliberal uh, society, uh, because we don't we don't resist it. Like we don't. It's so difficult to get that conversation going, because it, you know it is such a sticky and it's a sticky morass. And you see other people trying to struggle against it, but it's sticky. The more sometimes the more you struggle against it, the more you get trapped in it perpetual need to uh distinguish yourself, to redefine yourself, to be like, look, I'm not a conformist. I'm not a conformist.
1: Basically, you're defining yourself by what you're not, which is still being defined by that thing. It's just the flip side of that.
0: Yeah. It's I mean there's just this there's just a certain amount of struggle, I think, that Asian I see Asian Americans I, I saw myself stuck in this that I think we could really benefit from sort of joining the larger conversation that's being had, you know, across the world. And I think particularly in places like Canada and in the US to try and look past sort of what's going on. And I think like Diamond in a way, isn't it like, don't you think it's sort of like timely in that we're really being forced to do it now? Because I think the, the sort of like passive... This, the somewhat passive uh, identity and the sort of like middle of the road identity that Americans default to and Asian Americans default to is really not that viable anymore, especially for young people. I think is the problem is like, I just don't think that there is anything to default to anymore. Like, I, in my opinion, Diamond, I think the model minority idea is dead.
2: Oh, it it is. <laughs>
0: And there's no. Cr- it's, it used to be a crutch, is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And it's gone. It's not available anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we, like we've, we've, we've talked a lot about how to, for, for, for decades, like we've talked about how to resist it, how to uh, recognize it, how to whatever. But now it's like, well, it's gone. So what do you do now? You know, I think that's kind of where we're at.
2: Yeah. I mean, with kind of like this pandemic going on and with all the anti-Asian racism going on, I think that Asians and like, especially Asians in the diaspora uh, all around the world have been realizing, well, it doesn't matter how much of a model minority I am, we're still going to like have horrible acts of racism perpetuated against us. And like this crutch is not going to save us and it's not going to do anything. In some ways, I think this pandemic has really put the nail in the coffin of this model minority idea. And Asians in the diaspora have been like waking up and realizing, well, we can't go on like this anymore. And we have to take more radical actions to advocate for like equality and to be treated with respect and to not have to be like exploited like that anymore.
0: The reason I say I think the model minority is dead is because, you know, let's let's be a little bit more specific about terms. My own definition of it mm-hmm. is that the model minority is the idea that as Asians, we represent sort of the uh, potential for, uh, you know, what a racial minority could achieve or become as sort of proof that the system works. Part of that, I think, is to sort of there's a traitor aspect to the model minority. We have to uphold uh, certain key pillars, not maybe not the whole thing, right, not the whole concept of, of, of white dominance. But we there's certain pillars, like, for example, the fact that this is actually a meritocracy. We have to uphold that notion that it's a meritocracy. But I think as we've moved to the present day, you know, we're starting to see, in particular, I think it's this conflict, this growing conflict that we're having with China, that in order to serve that f- role now, the usefulness of the Asian has, in, in its former state, Standing behind things like the Moynihan report, this notion that, oh, we have, as long as we bring our uh, family centric culture and our 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 knack for obedience and hard work that you can make it in America, that like nobody needs us for that anymore. Mm-hmm. The issues that we are needed for require us to become rabid right wingers. Like the model minority, as I see it, are people like Gordon Chang, like people who will their job now is to go on Fox News and be openly rabid racists. So is that model minority? It's something else now. It's it's morphed into something that's not even viable for most people. And that's why I say it's dead.
1: So, I mean, I think there are still two camps now. I guess Asians are moving from model minority to yellow peril. I mean, we're basically like 80% in yellow peril now with the way that the Cold War against China is shaping up. Like, I think what we see are the liberals and the leftists, but there definitely is the second camp of, um, rabid right wing Asians and, and Chinese people. Like, that is a choice that they're making, right? You know, like, we're not passive anymore. We are making that choice of going left or digging our heels in and going hard right and saying whatever we need to say to, to get by. But again, you know, like, that's something that is happening in the rest of the country, especially with young people. So we're not necessarily bucking a trend with any of this either.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. I, I think, I think the thing that to see like many Asians who used to be like this middle of the world model minority just taking a hard turn right. I don't think that's a coincidence because I think that the concept of a model minority in the first place always like relied on having someone else be the anti-model, like the non-model minorities. And so it was always, like, since from the beginning, a concept that was based on oppression. And in that case, like, the oppression of, like, other non-Asian minorities, such as Black folks or uh, Latinx folks. And I think that, like, when it was more of a middle-of-the-road model minority thing like that kind of dynamic was present but now that things have become more extreme then you see like those Asians who end up just taking a hard turn right and just really clamping down on like this oppression to like reinforce their status uh yeah so so i i, I don't i don't think that's surprising at all like you see that a lot of Asians have turned to the right
1: the new model minority is the hard right Asian who calls every other Asian a Chinese spy—they're not there to reinforce black oppression anymore. They're there to reinforce yellow peril.
2: Can you can you explain that a little bit more?
1: Like when Tim was talking about like the rabid anti-China person who goes on Fox News and says, you know, coronavirus was made in a lab in Wuhan. Like Mm. That is the model minority. That Mm. is what is required of you to stay in the in the circle, you know, to be protected. Wow. Mm.
0: I think it's that. And I also think it's the Andy knows and the like, this is how difficult it is. Right. And I guess what I'm trying to suggest is that, you know, before, like, say, in the 90s and the fresh off the boat era or whatever, like, the you know, that that's almost like our 50s now. Right. Is the 90s, the sort of idle 90s. The kinds of like lies and ideologies that the model minority was submitted as evidence for, because that's, in my opinion, what a model minority is. We're a piece of evidence to buttress a claim, right? Buttress a case that's being made by those in power to say that the complaints, the theories of the underclass, primarily the black underclass, are invalid because I can submit this piece of evidence to show that, despite their quote inferior non white status, that they're able, nevertheless, to thrive in the meritocracy that we've set up, which is uh, perfect, or if it's not perfect, it's the best in the world, and it's the best you could possibly hope for.
1: Well, I'm saying I don't think we're needed for that either.
0: No, I think it's long past. I, that's my point: is I think that that era is over. Yeah, yeah. Because we've it's gone mask off. Like once you get to Trump
1: even without the mask off, like it's, we're not needed for um, justifying the fact that like black people are oppressed because there's other black people who can do that. Now black immigrants, they come and they supplant what right, the Asian right. immigrant wa- was doing. And so they're the new minority model minority for black oppression. And so I'm, I'm oh, saying and they're, that and they're a
0: much better piece of evidence. They anyway. are. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so I'm saying that, there's um, a narrower window for the Asian American to be even useful as a model minority. So the most useful thing that they can do right now is actually dig into yellow peril.
0: Right. And I, I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, I think like someone who ex- exemplifies trying to hold on to that is the the, the journalist Li, Li Fang. Do you know that name? He's over at The Intercept. He works at a, you know, pretty progressive or it's coded as pretty progressive media outlet the intercept so he's no andy no he's no right winger but on the other hand it's like i've seen him try and sort of take the skeptical view in terms of like the you know being against the excesses of pc cult cancel culture pc culture and also the excesses of the sort of uh, minneapolis and post minneapolis uh, protests and stuff and go into sort of like this try and take a sort of moderate view in terms of like the status of of race conflict in america but it's so damn polarized that the second you know he was trying to sort of take that middle route so to speak which i think is a reflex or an instinct almost for asian americans like he was immediately swept and sucked into the right wing because of that the the sort of progressive side in terms of those issues immediately targeted him and said like, okay, this guy's clearly like a crypto racist or whatever. And at that point, you're kind of like, yeah, fuck it, maybe I am. And so he's now sort of taken that JK Rowling stance of like, you "No, know, fuck it, I'm going to double down on what I said. And I, I just think like, it's, you know, we're so used to tr- being able to uh, occupy, I guess what they call the liminal space, right? If you try it now, I think it's just not there anymore. It's not available, right? Diana is kind of like I, I think we we're tr- we're kind of converging yeah. on that idea.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh.
0: It's not. You're going to go all the way right. You're going to turn into Andy No, or you're going to have to really understand your position. What do you like? What are you really trying to do here? Do you know what I mean? Like, are you trying to? This is how I think of it. Is like, are you trying to lend credence to someone else's ideas? Because I think that's what a lot of Asian Americans, that's what our instincts are. Mm.
1: Well, see, I think it goes deeper than that because I think there's actually, like, we're so incepted that our ideas, for the most part, are other people's ideas. And we don't really even have the
2: space to come up with our own ideas. Yeah, I I I agree with that. I I think I think I think that as Asian Americans, like we haven't really been given a space to have our own ideas or like have like, our own takes on there. And I I think that like this has to do with, again, like immigrant, like, precarity. It's like, for example, for recent immigrants, it's not safe to, like, have your own perspectives or your own ideas or to speak out about things. So I, I, I think that there is kind of like a bit of a void. It's, it's almost kind of like, at this point, it has become almost like a reflexive survival strategy to just like, well, okay, we're going to use whoever else's ideas can be of help to us. And I really don't think that's necessarily like a good thing because I do think that like there, we have like a lot of things to say. We have a lot of opinions and I think that now is the time to see a bit more of that.
0: I agree with you up to this point though, which is that if you, what you're saying is like it's born out of the necessity of survival if that were the complete picture of it that as Asian Americans did better and as we got wealthier and as we went up the ladder that we would then become more independent thinkers. And I find that that's actually the opposite mm-hmm. to some degree. I, f- I find that it's actually the upper middle class, the educate the sort of professional class of Asian Americans, the ones who do go to uh, get elite educations and sort of the higher in up in that, Tearing that you go, I find almost the more, I don't want to say indoctrinated, that's a bit heavy, but the more assimilationist we get. And it seems like it's not just Asians. No, it's not. Yeah. I think all people that end up in elite education sort of, in, especially these days, really kind of end up being molded pretty strong into prevailing beliefs of the elite class and the power class.
1: Yeah, so in the book that uh, we were talking about in our last discussion, um, "The Black Bourgeoisie" by Franklin Fraser, E. Franklin Fraser, he talks about this a lot, and he has a huge section just going into the ed- the bourgeois education of the black middle class done by the white abolitionists and the white liberals from New England who were spreading educational philanthropy into the South. And it was a rigorous, rigorous, like moral, political and religious education, you know, so it was massive, massive indoctrination on a large scale. And it really does remind me of like the colonialism, you know, that kind of education that Asians and Asian Americans are yeah, indoctrinated by. It's kind of the same everywhere. And also, he makes a point to say that, you know, the black radicals of, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, they weren't from that middle class background. They were all they were more like folk. You know, they were from working class backgrounds and they struggled and suffered and failed to attain a position in that middle class. And so when you say teen, the, like the higher you go, the more indoctrinated you are, or like the less you think for yourself, like, yeah, that does play out. One of the things that I think is actually happening is that we're, we're doing well. We're doing, so well that we haven't failed and suffered enough to actually fucking give up and step the fuck back and actually think for ourselves the way that other minorities and other groups have.
2: I think my theory about this non-involvement of like the bourgeoisie, no matter what race or ethnicity that they are, is again, I think a question of survival precarity i think at least for like visible minorities like it's a survival precarity thing because i think that people who are people of color are just like so marginalized that they think that as a sense of safety is to like reach this like bourgeois like, existence and then like once they make it there they just want to stay there And they're just so indoctrinated with the idea that, well, this is what it takes to be secure in life, that it just never leaves them. So even when they have all of these things and they are stable, they just don't want to do anything that's out of line because, like, they've been indoctrinated with this idea that if you do anything that's out of line, then you're going to become one of the bad people. So I I think this, like, apathy from the bourgeoisie, like, it comes from there. I totally agree
1: with you. Here's where your article on failure comes in is that the middle class mentality, you know, that precarity, that fear of failure, that's what happens when you succeed as somebody who doesn't actually have any real power in society is that you become this person, you know, this kind of person. And that only through actually failing. And realizing that, you know, like you failed, the thing that you're trying to go for was actually bullshit. And you're finally (laughs) able to just fucking step out of that whole system and see it for what it is. That's the beauty of failure. And I think that's something that you captured really, really fucking well. Yeah, thank you. It's that failure that's missing in Asian American middle class or liberal discourse is that like these people haven't failed. They haven't seen the other side. They're still in the matrix, you know, and they think that this is the whole world. And like your perspective is what is needed to just tell them to like just take the (laughs) – (laughs) <laughs> just, just stuff the fuck. I don't want to say take the red pill, you know, because that's been co-opted. <laughs> but, you know, like just, just, just realize what's actually going on. I,
0: I agree with that. I think there's another even stickier or a, a, another sticky part of it, which is that uh diamond, as you say, for the marginalized racial minorities, that they're kind of lauded by society as sort of, Examples of the system working. They're led to believe that their success, and this may be more true, I well, you know, it's true of Asians too, as, as long as they're breaking into industries that traditionally we've felt excluded from. Like, so for example, like, say, take entertainment, and when we have actors or directors or such achieve, you know, really substantial career milestones a golden globe or headlining a sitcom or something, that just the individual achievement of that is held up as you know a milestone in racial justice. Yes. In the abstract. And so they become convinced of this, that they represent, they're like the sort of the vanguard of racial justice because uh-huh. they were, you know, you know what I'm saying? So like it's uh-huh. not just I think it goes hand in hand. It's partly, yes, it is definitely what you say, the uh, marginalization, the fear of being cast out. But then there's the sort of like twin of it. There's the twin, the obverse of that, which is the sort of sense of purpose and mission to say, I've got to do this for all the other Asian or all the other black or all the other, you know, Latinx people. It's on my shoulders. And I think our culture really promotes this idea And it gets, quote, regular people on board with that, too, because I think there's so many Asian Americans who were really swept into the idea of, well, okay, model minority is if I become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer, right? That's model minority. But to be an actor or a director or some other kind of artist... That is the direction we need to go. Mm -hmm. And so the more Asian Americans I see make it in show business, the better. We kind of gave show business, Asian Americans, I think, give show business in Hollywood a little bit too much. We find too much value in it Mm -hmm. because just as all other industries, I mean, it's probably even more corrupt in those industries uh, and even more nakedly exploitative. And yet we feel like our inclusion in it and our success in it is a milestone of progress. You know, and I think that gets us stuck. I think that really gets us stuck. You know, that's hard to get out of.
2: Yeah, I agree with both of your points. I think that especially for for Asians who are middle class or above, one thing that I was trying to touch on in my article is that, well, for Asians who are in kind of that socioeconomic demographic, failure is not going to end you. Because I think failure is also kind of complicated because... Like failing as someone who is like homeless and has like zero financial resources and who is working class is very different from failing as an upper middle class person. The person who is like working class and homeless and has no financial resources, failing for them is actually going to be so much worse than if an upper middle class person just failed something in their life, you know? So I think I think what I was trying to get at in my article is that for the people who are privileged enough that even if you like failed something it's not going to be the end of it for you that this is actually a privilege this is actually just like shows that you are actually in a position in life where you can't do these things and you can realize that, oh, actually, maybe all of the things that I was trying so hard to strive for were like more or less BS, you know? And I think that this brings me to the topic of just like the thing about like holding up like marginalized people who like succeed in domains or industries or in contexts where there's like very few of them. I think that's also like in a way like very toxic. Not necessarily for the individual people themselves, because for them, I mean as an individual, it was very difficult, and I congratulate them for being able to make it amidst all the obstacle. But I think on a societal level, it just reinforces the idea that if there's like this one person who was very marginalized who was able to make it in that domain then that means that we don't have any discrimination or any problems because we have this like one person or we have these few people. And I, I don't think that's a good mindset at all. And it also t- takes away from the fact that maybe making it it's some industries that are inherently like exploitative or that like rely on like very like unfair practices. like what I'm thinking about is, for example, like show business or um, the business world, for example these industries like like have exploited their practices and by just like holding up the people the marginalized people who have been able to make it in those industries it just kind of blinds us to all the exploitation and the like abusive things that have been happening within these and i think i think it's not good i think we need to take a step back and to realize like the bigger picture one of the only ways to do that is through failing and just seeing things for what they are and realizing that like you actually have to take like a step back take more of like the, the long view on things
0: what what do both of you mean by failing do you have like a you know like a concrete idea of it or do you think it, it's whatever whatever it is that a person's fixated on to let go of that or or what is what is an example of failing
2: in my article, I do talk about, like, failure, and I just kind of examine how, like, that concept has been treated in different contexts. And I think that, like, failure can mean different things. Like, it can mean, like, for one individual person, maybe not accomplishing, like, a goal that they set out for themselves, or um, having, like, a setback in their life. But I think, we also need to understand failing as a societal thing as well. That when we fail collectively, or if we fail a group of people collectively, that we should also be accountable to that. And I think that in a very individualistic society, such as North America, failure is reduced to individual things. So, well, you know, this person got rejected from their job, Or this person's marriage didn't work out and they got divorced, so that's a failure. And I think in individualistic societies, we're very good at understanding that kind of failure. But we are much less good at understanding how, as a society, we collectively have failed many groups of people who have been marginalized and how we have exploited many groups of people like on which we build our society. And that's that's something that I talk about in my article.
0: So, So you're talking about not just individual failure, like, yeah. oh, I didn't get to achieve the career goal or the academic goal I set out for myself and always uh-huh. dreamed of, but also to acknowledge that you're living in a society that is introducing failure into sort of like the social structure, like the failure of community, the failure of of government, the failure of institutions,
1: yes, and what the people in power do is they make personal failure so abhorrent and so shameful that everyone tries to hide from it at all costs, and then they equate personal failure with societal failure, and so the societal uh. failure. Um, becomes something shameful. It becomes something that we just don't even want to recognize. And then we, we also blame the people who we have failed. Yes. You know, we say, this is your personal failure. If we had a better relationship with failure on a personal level too, I think it would help actually address societal failures.
0: Absolutely I think great example of that, something I've been thinking about li- lately is the issue of money and debt. You know let's face it, I mean that's success. that's achievement in America is, is money. And uh, what I've noticed is that you know a lot of failure is hidden, but successes are made very public. And I think in the world of money, the way that uh, manifests is the fact that you can see what people buy and But you can't see the debt that they have to take on to achieve that. And I I think it's interesting because we live in a society where we're really not supposed to talk about money. Even my closest friends, I don't know what they make. I don't know how much money they got in the bank. We like to sort of like signal to each other a little bit how much we uh, have uh, through our purchases and what we claim we can afford. But what is interesting is like any given individual, there is no you have no idea what they're Personal financial situation is. But we know that as a society, we have the aggregate data that's public. We know as a society, we're like on the verge of insolvency, meaning the average, like in aggregate, the American family is heavily, heavily in the red, right? Uh, The Federal Reserve, for example, did that study that said, like, most, by far, like, most American families could not scrounge up $400. For, for like a personal emergency that would put them over the brink, right? So, and, and we know that, uh, for example, we can, the Federal Reserve also releases data about household debt. How much debt does the average household in America have? And it's skyrocketing, right? We have the graph. I know in aggregate, this is what's going on in society. We're becoming heavily, heavily indebted. Our savings are very meager. And uh, we're living on borrowed time. We're, We're living, you know, a lot of like our lifestyle is financed by our own future prosperity. We know that in the aggregate, but we don't know that about any particular person in society. You know, I think that's the difficulty of failure is we hide our own failures. Like we hide our debt just as one domain. Nobody talks about their financial situation. People with like money problems, they talk about that in private. But when we buy a fancy car or buy a fancy house, that's done publicly. And I think that's an example, I think, of how we like love to hide failure. We don't talk about the hardships, but we very much advertise all the upside to it. And I think that, that there's a sort of like weird knock-on effect where you know we become a very competitive society, but all at the same time, also a very deceptive society, because so much of what we signal to each other is done through... Through deception, through hiding, particularly hiding failure,
2: yeah, I'm actually really happy, team, that you brought up money because I think money is a really, really prime example of how we deal with failure, like on both a personal and a societal level, because I think that, as you said, people don't talk about their debt or their money problems like in public, but people will show like their monetary success in public, like super extravagant purchases. And I think it's exactly the same thing on a social level. Like, intuitively, everybody knows that, well, there are people in society who cannot make ends meet or who are on social assistance. Everybody knows that. But publicly, we don't really want to reckon with that, that we live in a society that is based on so much economic inequality And so, like, it just, like, leads to things such as, like, you know, like, people who say, like, I don't want to have any housing projects built in my backyard. I don't want to see any homeless people, like, sleeping on my porch and things like that. We just want to push it out of our minds and ignore it and pretend it doesn't exist. So, basically, the way we deal with money issues societally mirrors the way we deal with it personally. This goes to like a deeper problem that we have with socioeconomic class in North America, where I think because North America has been built with this ideology of the American dream, where financial success is at the heart of that ideology, the American dream, that says like, well, anybody, no matter what background, no matter how rich or poor, you can all make it on this continent. I think it just like creating an environment where it's taboo to talk about the fact that economic inequality exists because the very fact that economic inequality exists and that it is something that we're conscious of, it just completely destroys that myth. Like if it is still true that poor people struggle so much more than rich people to make a financial success of themselves, then there is no such thing as an American dream. And I think that... In North America, that is something that we really don't want to confront ourselves to, particularly in Asian immigrant communities, because I think that, like, for a lot of Asian immigrants, they came to North America because of this dream, because of, like, the American dream. So, therefore, to tell an Asian immigrant that, you know, all of this is kind of BS, that for them is a very hard pill to swallow.
0: Right, because they they stake their whole lives on it. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you're telling them that they made a terrible choice. Yes. Nobody wants to be told that.
1: Exactly. Have either of you talked to your parents about this? Because I I talked to my parents one time about this, and they actually said they regret coming here, and they probably would have been better off if they stayed in China and they didn't realize how hard it would be to be here and you know like like my parents are like relatively successful but like they would have been more successful if they had stayed in China and they realize this and they recognize it and um you know they're real about it
0: i've talked to my parent not not about that exactly but we have talked about sort of american decline And they're totally aware of American decline. And I think they're aware of it more because of their age and they experienced America in the 1970s and 80s and 90s. And those are some damn good decades for the American middle class. Now they're just looking at it and they're just like, this is a terminal. This seems like a terminal decline. I mean, they see it pretty clearly. I think in some ways more clearly than I do. Do they express regret? I don't think I might. I think my parents are a little bit exceptional in that sense where they've never really bought into it. I think they were always a little bit somewhat aware of the real nature of America. But yeah, I, I, I think that you, do you remember what was that movie? The, um, the Farewell. There was a scene oh, where yeah. the, uh-huh. the mother. Yeah. Where she kind of expressed, you know, a bit of regret or not, not regret. A little bit of defensiveness. Because the Chinese uh, relatives of hers that didn't leave China were sort of like not that impressed by their, you know, sort of like modest middle class, Mm -hmm. strongly working middle, you know, working class or middle class existence in New York. And they're like, yeah, we're not that impressed with you. And they're, you know, yeah, I mean, to tell someone that they made the wrong choice in uprooting their life and moving to a new country and that that was a bad choice. That's rough.
1: (laughs) Joe Wong said like his his biggest fear was that one day his son would be like dad why did you bring me here fuck this. <laughs> like I've definitely said that to my parents before when I was a kid thinking back on it that must have been really fucking hard for them to
0: hear. Well how do you deal with it Diana? What do you mean? Well, you've expressed that con- that that feeling before, like fuck, you know. If they, why am I here? Well, how do you deal with it? What's your What's your take on it? You know, as the product of someone who was like born, you know, we're not born here, but like stuck here, you know, like in that sense.
1: Yeah, like at this point, I don't know if I could just go back. You know, like I don't speak Chinese well enough to make it there, and I don't know the call. Co- like I wouldn't be able to do anything there. I guess. For me, I'm just like, you know, if I stay, I stay to fight fight the oppressors, you know. So I guess that's where I'm at right now.
2: Yeah. That's like I think also my way to look at it, because like I think that like for me throughout my life I was just like, wow, there's like this problem and there's like this other problem. For me, it was like really difficult to communicate that to the other Asian people around me that, like, you know, maybe like we we have some some issues here in in North America. In a way, that's like not the kind of discourse they are used to having. There, there's also like this idea, like with some Asian people that like I have met, is like, you know, my life was like ten thousand times worse in Asia. That, yeah, even if things aren't, like, super great here, I would rather be here than be back in Asia. What does that mean, though?
1: Like, have you ever talked to them about what specifically they mean? Is it like, oh, <laughs> like, the communists took my egg monopoly or something like that?
2: Like, for some Chinese people, like, they, when it was, like, the Cultural Revolution, they had to, like, be sent to work on like the farms and they couldn't go to university and like their family got separated like like stuff like that which is like you know i understand well my parents my parents
1: went through that too and then they came here and now they're saying it would have been better if we stayed. so fuck your friends (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) It's like if you're stuck in the cultural revolution, then you you don't have a clear head about how China is now or how the U.S. is now.
2: Yeah. Well, what I was kind of like going with this cultural revolution thing is that I think that like for people who have had those life experiences and then they come to North America, because they have been so traumatized by what they went through, it's kind of like they want to like really hold on to the fact that at least over here it's like not as bad. I think it's it's a it's a trauma coping mechanism in a way. With trauma, what's kind of like difficult is that I think in Asian cultures there is not a good conversation around trauma and mental health. So that instead of trying to deal with their trauma constructively, like there's a lot. We have a lot of Asian people who end up just like holding on to this crutch, or holding on to the model minority crutch, when really there are a healthier way to deal with it. But it's just not a conversation we're having in the Asian American community.
0: Yeah, I I think that the whole idea and the reason I was asking about that is because. It's an illusion that Mm -hmm. I think a lot of like, you know, one and a half or second gen have to carry with them. I think actually it starts to fade probably by the third generation, this illusion that there is a sort of like version of you that could exist or does exist in some kind of alternate universe where you didn't immigrate. So I think that it's almost like a mental or psychological discontinuity. And I think like Asian Americans are plagued with these things where It's almost like our consciousness is like a pretty small island. There's like a shore and you're always constantly in danger. Like if you venture out too far that you're not sure you can find your way back or that you would flip into being something totally different. You know, they say Asian Americans have identity issues. And I think that it's true. It in living in America in particular doesn't help with that. (laughs) You know what I mean? And
1: I think that's kind of what we were talking about before, which is, like, there's so many layers of trauma or identity issues that, like, when somebody says, oh, be your authentic self, it's just like, you don't know what the fuck that is.
0: Oh, it's a terrible, yeah, it's a terrible idea, yeah.
1: There's no concept of an authentic self the way that white people have, because, they just get to be people and we deal with all this other shit. We need to accept that that is how we are rather than trying to chase this other like a uh, ephemera of like being that like unique individual or whatever.
0: Well, I would I would say a little somewhat more optimistically that I don't think that white people have stable identities either. I guess what I'm saying is like, I think the notion of like sort of like white stability of white uh, middle class, white American dream life, I think it's illusory to a large extent. Like, I guess what you're saying, Dinah, is we have to accept that we can't achieve that. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I don't think that that's an achievement. Right. Part of the problem is that the white ideal, I think even white people are stuck in a sort of like perpetual state of trying to achieve it and because they're stuck i think in the trap of consumer culture.
1: Yeah, it's a projection. It's not reality. Yeah, i guess in in a way i'm saying like everyone including us we're just trying to chase after this projected ideal of what the good life is supposed to be and like at some point we have to realize it's just an instagram filter, you know. It's not reality.
0: No, it's a scam. I think what it is, is like, I think that there was, I think a lot of people that were for or that are marginalized were being sold a bill of goods that essentially are hand-me-downs. Like, for example, t- whenever Crazy Rich Asians came out that year was the year when Me Too uh, and all the revelations behind Me Too came out. So we knew uh, as a society that Hollywood was a fucking dumpster fire, was uh, was a dystopian world that produced lies and it was abusive to people. It was a burning house. But that happened to be the year that was a sort of like landmark year in Asian American media rep in movies. And the overall feeling that I got was that Asian Americans were being lured into a burning house. We were given a lot of things, given a lot of marquee, uh, given the things that we always said we weren't allowed to have. When times were good. Well, now when times are bad, I think they give us a movie like Crazy Rich Asians or whatever. They start promoting Asian Americans in Hollywood because they need I think we're being sold hand-me-downs because they need someone to prop up Hollywood. But they're not willing to do it anymore because they've seen through it. They've seen the sausage being made. They know the bullshit of, and they're done with it. They don't they, they have no further use of. Of the lies that Hollywood sold them uh, in the '90s and 2000s, uh, and now they're kind of like, look, we you know white people I'm talking about are like, look, we don't need this shit anymore. We want something better. So what's what's going to keep the what's going to keep Hollywood alive? We need a new set of people to market these movies to. You know, I think Asian Americans were seen as a, you know because we watch a lot of movies. I, I've seen the studies like we spend like four four times the amount on movies as uh, uh, I think the average in America.
1: That's wild to me. I don't know who oh, that crazy. is. it's crazy. I mean, our
0: entertainment spend is huge. Asian Americans are pro- profligate who, spenders. Who are these people? Asian Americans, <laughs> typical Asian, Americans. Asian Americans. From because I, I have a few friends who are in the Asian American advertising industry, and they, they, they know they have the data. Asian Americans are profligate spenders. We really, really indulge the uh, consumer lifestyle because I know that because they advocate their wa- their their services to companies that want to advertise to say. We have the data, and let me tell you: you may think Asian Americans are a small, marginal group, but they're actually huge, out, you know, outsized spenders relative to the rest of America. And that's why you'll see like more and more Asian Americans in commercials, is because there's like Asian, there's an Asian American advertising like lobby out there that's saying, "Look, it's in your interest to advertise to Asian Americans because they spend so much money."
2: It all boils down to capitalism.
0: <laughs> it does. Yeah, and I think, I think a lot of times we are laggards in that sense that we are kind of behind the times that what we think of as catching up and assimilating into the good life uh, is actually us being leered into a burning house or buying a stock that's going to tank. And the insiders are selling that stock. They're pumping and dumping because they don't want to get out of that Ponzi scheme.
1: Yeah, it's very glass ceiling, bamboo elevator, bamboo cliff. <laughs> Bamboo Cliff, that's what it's
2: called.
1: <laughs> Bamboo yeah. Cliff is um, when they hire an Asian person to lead a company that they know is failing. So that they, right, blame, right, 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 right. they blame the Asian person if they fail. And if they succeed, they just boot him and replace him with a white person after they succeed. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, so that's a really good analogy. And like, I was also thinking like when Tina was speaking, is as if like white people were like oh walking around with like brand new clothing and it's like asian american just never had any clothing and then one day when like oh the white person just like doesn't have any use of like their clothing anymore because it's super used um they're like oh yeah here's some hand me down clothing oh it's going to break in two months but like whatever you can have it and because asian just never had any clothing in the first place they're just so happy to like have a piece of clothing And it's like, who cares if it's going to break in two months? I'm just happy I have like a shirt, (laughs) you know? Yeah, yeah. Jessica Lee, she wrote this article
1: called White Supremacy is Systemic Narcissism. And I think what she wrote in there fits really well with this discussion too, because she's um, framing white supremacy as an abusive parental relationship where Mm. um, the narcissistic parent, one child will be the scapegoat and the other child will be like the golden child that gets everything you know she's basically saying that like white people are the narcissistic parents black people are the scapegoated child and Asians are like the golden child, um, you know, which is the model minority, which is like, oh, you know, like the golden child gets all the praise and attention and is used to punish the scapegoat child for. Uh, whatever, like made up problems that the narcissistic parent uh, wants to foist on them. And like, that's true in terms of the model minority construct. But in a lot of ways, like what teen and Diamond, you're talking about, the Asian American is also the scapegoated child, kind of looking toward whatever, you know, like scam of a golden child, whatever they have, we're kind of like being cycled through the scapegoat versus golden child over and over again, in different ways, you know, in media, we're like ascending into golden child status. So, we're getting the attention and praise that we haven't had and we're like longing for. And in other ways, we're the golden child who's oppressing the other, you know, the scapegoated child.
0: No, I agree with that. There's a lot of like faux struggle, I think, in in Hollywood, where we have it, it we have it has the appearance, I believe, of a real sort of justice struggle. Like and I'm not saying that we're part of it. I think that we're being sort of in a way at a higher level being manipulated into this. But Lulu Lu Wang is like out there saying that Ron Howard should not be the one to direct the biopic of Long Long, the famous Chinese pianist. You know, she's saying like, no, no way could, you know, a white director really capture the cultural uh, zeitgeist of northern China. They should pick someone that really knows it, et cetera, et cetera. It's all valid. It's all valid. It's it's real. It's, you know, and I, and I think she really genuinely means that. But I think if you really boil it down, though, you know, think about what Hollywood really needs. They know. I mean, they're not dumb. They know that, every, you know, we're going to get sick of watching like, you know, the same nepotism of the The children of these famous people going up and tearfully accepting an award or whatever, like we know it's bullshit, right? Like Like who would watch the Oscars and what emotional impact would it really have on people if it was just spoiled Californian white people? Who have been in Hollywood for at least two generations, going up there and accepting rewards? We need uh, Maharshala. is that a, I'm, I don't know how to pronounce his name? We need him up there winning the Oscar tearfully. We need Sandra O oh to go up there and tearfully accept the award, and we need Lulu Wang to go up there and, and tearfully accept awards. It proves how much it still means. Yeah, you know, and I and I think that's the game that that's what we can offer Hollywood, and I think there is a trade. And you know, that isn't even
1: new in the 50s or 60s. It was like Marlon Brando, you know, he's like the first Polish guy. And there was like Al Pacino and, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. oh my God, like Italians ascending into whiteness. So it, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. a cycle. And like we just. We haven't seen it because we just entered the game in 1965.
0: Right. Like you say we're golden. Children. I think what Asian Americans suffer from is middle child syndrome. Because I think like no matter what, from what direction you come from, whether you come from the bottom or from the top we're sort of second in line, and we're, we're constantly sort of in a, in a hand-me-down phase. I feel like that's the thing that really I, as an Asian American, would like us to get past or to reject is just how easily... We fall into second hand, not second, just second tier, but second hand, meaning the problem isn't that we're never going to achieve this. It's that we will achieve it after we already know or should know or are able to know what it all means. And I think there's a lot of Asian Americans like, you know, if you keep up to date with what's going on, with what's being said, with what the critiques are of Hollywood as an industry, if you're keeping up to date with what's going on in America and in our political discourse and in our cultural discourse, Well, if you give a shit about Asian American stuff, the thing is Asian American stuff always seems about 10 years behind to me in terms of like how we're talking about stuff, you know, and it's it's very frustrating because it's like I also think that uh, there's something that Asian Americans can offer. And I'd like to try and flip the script as like, what can we offer? Like, what can we bring to that discussion that other people can't see? And that's how I would like for us to think as uh, an emergent culture in America. Like, I think there is or should be an emergent Asian American culture. And we've got to get out of this cycle of... Uh, and and that's why I feel like it ties so much into this concept of failure that you introduced. Because it is the fear of failure that keeps us, I think, in this second-hand status. Right? I don't think it's just second tier. I think it's about we're on a sort of path where we will achieve our goals. We will achieve our dreams just like 10 years behind. So it's almost like we don't have a future because we've already seen the future. It's white people.
1: <laughs> you know, like it's white people's sloppy seconds.
0: We're getting their sloppy seconds. And if you are actually perceptive, it's fucking boring. Cause you're like, I know exactly where we're going to be in 10 years. <laughs> we're going to be in 10 years where white people are right now, you know, in terms of these dimensions, So it's just very frustrating. Like I, I feel like that there's, there's no possibility of culture or creativity in that sense. And until we are able to say fuck it, I'm gonna fail. Meaning I don't want that for me. I, I I don't know if that's what you mean by it, but for me, I interpret it to mean like. Let's just get off the treadmill because I saw all these people saying like, I think this is a very self-serving thing that Hollywood says is like, oh, you know, like children really need to see images of themselves on TV. Well, when I was growing up, it was kind of like not a great thing to watch too much TV. It's like we grew up like 99, 99 99.999% of human existence did not involve television. I don't know how all of a sudden it's become some crucial human thing to see ourselves in TV or in movies. And... I felt for a while, it was like, I personally felt comfortable being excluded from Hollywood Asian people being excluded from Hollywood. There was a certain comfort I took from it to say that I just didn't have to care. I didn't need to identify with shit on screen. And that saw what other people in America were talking about when it came to uh, media critique, the state of the art, so to speak, like what people were really saying about media was exactly this black hole nature, the way that uh, media sucks you in and sort of like Uh, takes possession of your conception of self and all this stuff. And if we were excluded, in a way, we had already jumped the queue. Yeah. If you think about it from that perspective, we were ahead of the game. We just didn't were able to appreciate that fact because we wanted so desperately to run around into the alleyway and sneak back into the goddamn theater, (laughs) you know, for whatever reason.
1: I mean, I think about this a lot in terms of gender, you know. Like, I never felt included in femininity at all growing up, but it didn't really bother me because I saw what all of the white girls were doing, and it was just insipid bullshit. And I was just like, right, okay, exactly. I'm going to stay home <laughs> exactly. and uh, study and like get the fuck out of here because, well, fuck you. I guess when the way that you're describing it, it's like- Winning is actually failing because you just get sucked into this circle of shit, you know, just like circling the drain of shit that you have no control over and just constantly trying to keep up with the Joneses, but always being 10 years behind. Why does anybody actually want that life? It's a horrible life. You know, when you think about the grand scheme of things, do you want to really live like that your whole life and then just die? Because that sounds like a <laughs> failure of a fucking life. That sounds like a waste of time and a waste of space and a waste of your life. Yeah, the only way to really win is to just quit. Yeah. Is to quit the game, step on the
2: fucking treadmill and just fucking yeah. breathe. I agree. I agree. And I, I, think, I think that's where I'm at as well. I agree with both of what you said in the sense of, of just like step number one for Asian American is just like to realize that, you know, all of the things that we have been so desperately striving for and idolizing and putting on a pedestal, it's, it's actually terrible. It's, it's, it's not worth striving for. I, I do think that like we are in a very unique position in North America to like critique that. Because I think that compared to other uh, minority groups, that we're the closest one to whiteness, and we have like this like up close view to whiteness that I think that other people of color don't have. That we're like in a very unique position to just like see these things like up close and be like this is terrible. I don't want to do any of this. And I think that like from our vantage point, like we can really we can say that we have the power to say that. I think it just takes like. For just like people to just like flip the switch and just like realize this and just like collectively start saying that and being and and just <laughs> yeah. like sending a message like out there, being like, you know what, don't try. Like it sucks. Like we have to do something else.
0: It's so true. I think that there is a certain power in the sort of blandness and lack of identity that that Asians are sort of um, not saddled with. Like people think of Asians as sort of like bland maybe apolitical blindly blindly following you know what society has laid out and if asian people speak up i think the reaction is and i've had this happen to me on twitter is people will be like oh shit even the asian person sees it <laughs> if even the asian person is like "Yo, know you know what's going on in america with the cops is fucking bullshit like this is fucking crazy racist there's a guy I know he's or not really know, but I follow him on Twitter and he's he's a tech he's a tech reviewer in Gadget or something. I, I forgot. You know, he's like one of these guys that reviews cell phones. You, know, you think about an Asian guy that reviews cell phones and iPads and shit, probably like the most bland, apolitical Elon Musk testicle sucking kind of person. But like this guy, like two thirds of his tweet are just like, what the fuck is going on? Uh, He's in Hong Kong. But he's like, what the fuck is going on in America? He was like, it's so fucking racist. He was like, I've had enough of this shit. I've seen it my whole life. And even I, as an Asian American, I'm like, oh shit, even the Asian guy sees (laughs) it. There is a certain power to what he says because you don't assume that he, as a Chinese American tech reviewer with, you know, lives in Hong Kong, would necessarily have any skin in the game. He's not biased. He's not. He didn't grow up under the boot of cops. He wasn't. You know, he wasn't. Har- his father wasn't harassed by cops. Uh, he's not a black guy. But even he sees it. I think. I think that's a pretty. I think that's pretty powerful testimony in a way. Is the unbiased uh, witness right? The unbiased witness holds a much more weight in court. And I think to some extent, I guess what I'm trying to say is, Asian Americans can actually embrace that sort of lack of identity to A degree, yeah. You we could see it as sort of like a oh, I don't know who I am, or you know, I have no place in the society, or you could realize, no, actually, we're lucky because you're starting from s- square one. There's a lot of decision making and agency that's available to you when that is your position,
1: yeah. We spend so much time looking inward, navel gazing, or just like thinking about our own issues, but there's a lot. A lot of power in us using our subjectivity
2: yeah i think that also that because asian americans have had such a bland apolitical image that we can actually use that to our advantage and then have like the effect of surprise like on our side because people don't expect asian people to To just end up just like being super loud, like speaking up and like doing things that are very disruptive. So if like Asian people just all started doing that, then people are really going to be taken by surprise by that. Like it would enable us to cut, like use that like momentary surprise to really make some strides into like things that we care about. Because I mean, I think that as a writer, I get that reaction a lot. Sometimes, like, from white people, like, sometimes if I'm, like, in meetings with other white people, I'm, like, at parties where it's just, like, writers or other people in, like, creative industries, like, white people sometimes are just very surprised at, you're, like, oh, yeah, your work is just, like really strong and it's like it sounds really like angry or that like i have like a lot of opinions it just like it's very surprising to them that i don't think i would have gotten that reaction if i was like not an asian person you
1: stun your enemy and then you swoop (laughs) in for the kill
0: exactly but especially though if we bring up stuff beyond just the shit that they did to us right because like if if like you know we're like a michael luo uh, where, the you know, I don't we don't say shit about anything unless it's like liberal approved and I'm parodying like a white, you know, white approved thing about race or class. But, you know, for the most part, you know, I'm assi- uh, like I'm totally just kind of towing the line or whatever uh, until one day uh, some white woman tells me to go back to China and then I'll say something about that. OK, that's fine. But what about all the other stuff that you're not willing to say? You know, like, what about all the times that you overheard a colleague say some fucked up shit about not Asian people? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Where's where's that article? Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And I I, and I think that that would be a much more powerful article to write, you know, because I remember, uh, you know, I remember, like, for example, like um, my dad's pretty old and retired now. So I can tell these stories. You know, he had a boss, a white guy who would say, you know, just the. Most prototypical Asian grooming kind of shit, like, oh, hey, you know, in, in, in America, you know, we really respect Asians because you have this amazing history. Amazing history meaning, like, in the present time, we see you as shit. But we realized that at one point, you were the largest, you know, most richest nation on Earth, hundreds of years ago, whatever. But we will grant you second-tier status. Even the, you know, the, the Spanish, you know, like, they, they built, and by Spanish, they mean Spanish speakers, but the South Americans and the Mayans and all these, the Egyptians had this. But, you know, the one group that never was able to achieve civilization were the Blacks. Mm. And this guy, you know, he wasn't like a dumbass. Do you know what I mean? Like he was a he was a pretty successful guy working in the intelligence agency. You know, he was he was a not what you would consider your redneck racist. We don't talk about that. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I've, I've heard this from my friends too, my white friends. For some reason, I don't know, maybe it's just you know, they've grown accustomed to it, but when we're sitting around and I'm like maybe the only Asian guy there, maybe the only non-white person there, they're pretty much like yeah, teen's one of us.
2: Yeah, so they'll just let it fly. Yeah, do you know what I mean? I, I remember I had I also had like an instance of this. We were just like watching videos at at someone's house, and there was like a, a few other Asian people around. Uh, there was like a few white people around, and I think that there was just like this this host who was a white person just ended up putting this video that was so racist against native people. And it was just so offensive that I was just like, I can't do this. I'm going to leave because it was just over the top. I just like was so angry at him to have done that because I was just like, this is like completely inappropriate, even though like I'm not native. These are not like my personal issues, but I was just like, this is just like completely wrong. So I ended up just like, confronting this guy super angrily about this video trying to just like get an apology and trying to like get them to explain and i think that what really shocked this guy again is that he just did not expect an asian person to be so confrontational about issues that were not asian issues what may be almost as angry is to see how like the other asian people who were in the room at the time They just kind of went along with it from that incident. It just like shows how, like, still there are so many Asian people who are just like willing to like go along with it, as if like, well, if it's not an Asian issue particularly or anything like that, they're just like, yeah, we're just not going to really like get involved because like we already have like a good position. I've heard some people who say like, I
1: didn't feel like it was my lane to say anything. Mm. I think it's bullshit that excuse. But I mean that is their 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 logic is like, oh, well if this, this person didn't find it offensive, then I I shouldn't say anything either, which I think is stupid. <laughs> because if it was the other way around, I would always appreciate somebody saying something on my behalf, you know? But I mean I think yeah. there are mm-hmm. there there's just like the sense of like I don't want to overstep. I don't wanna say the wrong thing and therefore I'm gonna say nothing because I'm too scared of making a mistake.
2: Yeah, I I think I think there are definitely people who think like that. It's just that I think in this particular instance, oh, I it just looked like these these other Asian people were like completely oblivious to it and were laughing along with like the video. You could just see they just had zero consciousness of any of that. That was really shocking. That like there were some Asian people who were just so divorced from like these kinds of like issues. I think that is a genuine problem.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Just just give up. Just quit. Give up everything. <laughs> you know, because there's there's people who are like, oh, I'll I'll stand up for racial issues. But, you know, I'll still I'll still chase masculinity or I'll still chase, like, class status. So just, like, fucking give up everything because it's all connected and you're not going to win.
2: No, no, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> I think to kind of, like, sum up, like, a little bit what was said in this entire conversation, I do think that, like, we can really use a pretty unique position in North America to really, like, effects some change, like, given the representation that we have been given now in Hollywood, like, there is room to, like, use that kind of platform to actually just, like, disseminate messages of, like, you know, actually all of this sucks. Like, this is, like, terrible. And to be able to, like, reach a lot of people and to just, like, use our proximity to power to change things. And I think that 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 is that is something that like, I would like to see more of going forward.
0: I, I think a big... Uh, we, we should have mentioned was that Diamond also wrote an article for us called Raving Asians Make the Bass Drop, New Rave Culture, where she talks about the rave scene, the EDM scene, I guess, is, is part yeah. of that. Uh, and the drug scene. Uh, some people in here that I know, actually, great articles. I, I guess when you say fail... I mean, I think part of that's going to be also including, you know, actually having a lot of fun and having, you know, expansive experiences like this. You know, it's it's not just about failing. I think it's also about freedom, right, and liberation. Yeah. And I thought that that was a great companion piece to it too. So we'll link it. Uh, Raving Asians make the bass drop. New rave culture on uh, on our website on Planet Mag. So should have plugged that earlier. But I, I really enjoyed that article. Thank well.
2: you.
1: <laughs> yeah, me too.
0: I think for yeah, I really enjoyed this articles because like I, I think for young people, and because and I I had these experiences in my life too, was uh, to have expansive experiences as young people to not just be penned in by. You know, making sure that you're on the right path and and all this stuff. And to the extent that there's anxiety in life now, there's uncertainty in life because of what's going on all around us. That one of the reactions should be, yeah, maybe some anxiety as to how you um, get to the next step or what the next step is even going to be. But there is a liber there is a liberation to it too, because when I was young, uh, in the '90s, uh, you know, people would say stuff like, "Man, I really." wished I lived in the 60s. Uh. And it was a famous Radiohead uh, lyric because I, I, you know, I wish it was the 60s and I wish something would happen because in the 90s, everything was so certain. I mean, we were literally talking about the end of history. I mean, we thought that life would be like this forever, just better. And now that that's not true, it's like you're living in the 60s and the 40s. And the 20s <laughs> and the 30s, like all at once. Uh, this is like radically beyond anything that happened in the 60s. And I think it's double-edged, I think. I mean, in, in, in some sense, you're living in really uncertain and scary times. But on the other hand, you're living in a really uncertain, scary times. That's like...
1: It's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah.
0: It's exciting and you don't know what comes next, yeah. right? So what a way to, uh, to be to the extent that you feel like life should be stimulating and not just totally fucking boring and sedate. yeah. Well, here you are. That's
2: kind of also what I really love about like the rave community and like what I really enjoyed when I was like working on that article is the rave community and like the EDM like scene in general. That was born out of marginalization. It was like a gay black people who started it and then like queer people of color started it to create the space for them in a society that really marginalized them. And I think it's very interesting to see how different people like respond to being oppressed and to being marginalized. like on the one hand, you can just like clutch to like a false sense of security and like be really afraid of failing. and on another hand, like you can just like goes a complete other way and be like, you know what? This is not for me. I'm going to like, create my own thing and just create a space for my people and just like be free and like, find joy in that space. That was a very powerful way to like, deal with marginalization.
0: We should talk about that next time. Yes! <laughs> I, th- I think that would be an even more interesting conversation, the party scene and the drug scene and stuff like that. For so. sure. We haven't really touched on it yet on the pod, but it's a huge topic. Mm-hmm. Super interesting.
1: Cool. Thank you so much, Diamond, for joining us. Uh, thank you for listening. This is—I don't know—what do we usually say? I don't yeah, that's even good remember. Enough. We'll end it here. <laughs> All right. All right. See Bye. y'all. See y'all
0: next time. Bye.